welcome Bias 1301 students to our second podcast of the course. My name is Anastasia again, and today we are lucky enough to have Richard back for a second podcast in a row. And today we'll be talking about water, river, and regulations. Welcome back, Richard. Thanks, Anastasia. Looking Excellent. forward to it. Yeah. Do you mind doing a welcome to country for us? Sure. I'd like to acknowledge that we're on Bidjigal land and acknowledge that these were the traditional owners and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank Excellent. you. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> Water, rivers and regulations. Now, there's one thing that... I'm not a, a water ecologist in any sort of way. Uh, I've worked with some herps, you know, some frogs, some snakes, those kind of things. Um, but I always, um, I didn't realize how many categories there were to water. Yes. Why? And and like, you know, I guess is it is it science specific or is it important to for the public to kind of understand? Those it's a really kind of... important question and one that I'm asked a lot about. Oh. <laughs> And, and often by people who know already about water, mm. because even those of us who have been working in water and rivers for decades mm -hmm. get confused sometimes about uh -huh. the jargon and yeah. what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. So the challenge here is that you've got an intersect between a major resource. We all need water. Oh, yeah. Water is life, yeah. right? Water is life. Yeah. And we use a lot of that water, not only for drinking, but we use water for growing our food. Mm -hmm. um, we use water for growing the clothes that we wear, mm -hmm. whether it's water for sheep mm -hmm. or water for cotton. These are all fundamental resources mm -hmm. that, uh, that we use. Mm -hmm. And they mostly come, well, they all come nearly from either rivers or underwater, under, underground, like groundwater resources. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden you've got two different types of water there. You've got, mm -hmm. is it underground? Or is it above? Or is it above ground? Mm -hmm. And then the next question becomes, well, how do we get access to that water? We can okay. just pump it from the river, mm -hmm. but the river doesn't always have water when we want it. Yes, okay. Especially so, in Australia. Especially in Australia, mm -hmm. which is highly variable. Mm -hmm. But all over the world, um, people have wanted a dependable supply of water. Mm -hmm. So what humanity has been doing to get that dependable supply is building dams. Mm. So if you look at Sydney and you look in the mountains around Sydney, you'll see all of these big dams up in the Blue Mountains, mm -hmm. the biggest of which is Warragamba Dam, which supplies most of Sydney's resources. But there are other dams on other rivers and creeks that feed into that system. And are these all man-made dams? These are all man-made dams. They are colossal engineering feats. Mm. They've got massive dam walls because what you want to do when you build a dependable supply of water mm -hmm. is you want to be able to capture, and that's what a dam does, capture as much of that water as possible. Mm -hmm. So you build it usually in a mountainous area where you've got a lot of runoff, high rainfall, and when that water goes into the dam, it's caught by that dam wall, which is essentially a massive block of concrete 
between mm-hmm. two mountains. Right. So where that river used to carve a way down through the mountain, mm-hmm. the dam wall is built up from the bottom of the river across to the two ravines, sorry, the two mountains on either side, mm-hmm. forming a blockage. And then what that does is hold water right back, you know, thousands, billions of litres of water are held back in that dam. Mm-hmm. Once you've got that, you essentially construct a tap on the bottom of the dam and you turn it on and off when you want it. Mm. And you have a way of making sure that water goes to your different uses. Like those dams up there are primarily for Sydney's water supply. So it's how you reticulate that water out into all the suburbs Mm. and make sure the quality of the water is good. Now, so <clears throat> this might be a bit of an ignorant question for you, you know, post to an Australian. Um, just having been half Canadian, mm. a lot of our water from the mountains comes from glaciers, Absolutely. right? We get quite a bit of snow yeah. in Canada, right. of course. Yeah. Um, now here, from what I know, it does, it's not exactly a very snowy country. <laughs> I, know, I know some people go skiing in the snowy mountains, which... As a Canadian, I find it quite a bit amusing. Um, where does this water come from? Is it just rain? Is there any glacial water? We have snow. So yeah. if you look at the big mountains in the Great Dividing Range, the Snowy Mountains, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there are lots of dams there. Oh, okay. And, and they are catching, they're waiting for that snow to melt. Mm-hmm. In the same way in Canada, mm-hmm. they'll wait for that snow or those glaciers to melt. Yeah each year, and then they capture that water. Okay. Um, but most of the other dams that aren't in the high country mm-hmm. are just capturing the rainfall that wow. falls. So whenever there's a rainfall event, it's going into that dam and filling it up. So if you look at the dams around Sydney, most of the large dams there, well, they're all dependent on that rainfall mm-hmm. event. Mm-hmm. And once you've caught that water, then obviously you give it to a city. But if you've got dams on, so these are on the east of the Great Dividing Range. For mm-hmm. students who don't, haven't, don't know Australia, there's a, a sort of like a a spine of mountains that runs from the southern, most southern point of Australia right up to the north, just inland, which is called the Great Dividing Range. Mm-hmm. All the rivers on the east of that flow to the coast. All the rivers on the west flow west and mm. sometimes eventually to the coast, but sometimes actually just end in a lake in oh. the inland. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of those rivers have been dammed for agriculture. Mm. So that's the other really, imp- and, and hydroelectricity. Ele- like a lot of parts of the world, we have a Snowy Mountains hydroelectricity scheme that built lots of dams, mm-hmm. essentially to trap water and then pour it out and run turbines that generated hydroelectricity. Mm-hmm. Sometimes called a green power, but not very green. Wow. So, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's sit on that for a little bit. Why is it not very green? Because it does huge damage what? to river How? systems. Because you are changing the whole way a natural river flows. You're imposing your, your human signature, which is how do I get a dependable electrical supply mm-hmm. downstream uh, sorry, in, into the network. Mm-hmm. And that's nothing to do with natural rhythms of rivers, which are all around, you know, those those um, melting. If it's in the mount- snowy mountains, snow melt goes down into a spring flood. Mm-hmm. 
all the animals and plants are geared for their reproduction, their breeding to happen in that sort of time. So mm-hmm. all those cues are gone. So there's huge damage done then. Yeah. And a lot of the Snowy Mountains hydroelectricity scheme was also built to store water for irrigation. So not only was it letting water out to drive turbines, but mm-hmm. that water never got to the bottom end of the river where it was needed for the biodiversity mm-hmm. and has got diverted for irrigated agriculture. Okay. So this is to grow rice, yeah. um, grapes for our wine, mm. oranges, almonds, cotton. So all of these crops, even our dairy herds for milk, mm-hmm. um, require this water to be diverted from rivers onto land. Mm-hmm. And uh, the moment you do that, you actually have to define out who owns or is allowed to use that water. So hmm. the different types of water come actually from how much of the different shares of water in the dam do you own? And yeah. the dam regulates the river. That's where the word regulate comes from. Mm-hmm. It allows us to control the water in the dam. Mm-hmm. And each one of those, people talk about shares in the dam. So if the dam's okay. 100% full and you've got, one irrigation license, you might have one share of that water and you will get all of the water in that one share. If the dam, if you're in a drought year or an El Nino year, as we call it Mm -hmm. in here in Australia, then the dam might be half full and you've got a 1% of a full dam, you'll only get a half percent of your water. It's almost like stocks. Absolutely. Like very much like that. Absolutely. And, And even more than that, people actually bet hedge on the water that they're going to get. Really? And some people will actually sell the crop that they're going to grow Mm -hmm. before they've sown it on the basis of how much water they will get. Wow. They're in big trouble sometimes because it is, as one um, irrigation farmer described Mm -hmm. to me, it's like a giant casino because at some stages they will not get the water they were expecting. Yeah. And they still have to deliver on that um, cotton crop. So they have to go and buy it from somewhere else. Oh so that there's a whole market in water mm-hmm. going on out there. And, and absolutely there are trading in futures mm-hmm. in water, just as you would on the stock exchange. And people talk about virtual water as being something that is translated into an agricultural product mm-hmm. that, you know, supplied to the rest of the world. So quite a lot of the discussions around water are and what and the damage that we do to rivers are we're damaging our rivers here to export to another country so you're exporting mm-hmm. virtual water yeah at the environmental cost of a river and and that environmental cost is not only are you changing the the flooding patterns or the flow patterns of that river so that a lot of the native fish um, the plants aren't equipped to change in such a rapid time Mm -hmm. but a lot of the water that's in those rivers never gets to the end of the rivers so they start drying out and so the floodplains where a lot of the biodiversity is no longer gets the water it used to and Mm -hmm. people talk about rivers drying from the mouth up so you know they become degraded over Mm -hmm. time because of what we're doing to them and so In Australia, you were you were mentioning kind of the El Nino and, and El Nina events, which are um, high water and um, basically wet in a dry season. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so the La Nina, 
which is essentially um, called the South, the Christ Child in South America, mm. and used to be, or is it the other way around? Maybe it's the El Nino. Anyway, when we when we get droughts in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, they get floods in South America. When they get droughts in South America, we get floods here. Right. And it's all to do with the difference in sea surface temperatures in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when we're in an El Nino phase, then it's dry. Mm -hmm. The La Nina phase are when the floods come. So we've 21, 22 and 20. And yeah, 21, sorry, 1920, sorry, 2020, 21 Mm -hmm. and 22 were La Nina years, big flood years. Mm -hmm. And we're in a El Nino phase in 23. And so things like climate change are actually kind of messing up the frequencies and the regularities between El Nino and La Nina. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. The, The thinking at the moment is that we don't really know what's happening to rainfall patterns. Oh. But so it it could be that, in fact, what's happening in the messing up, if you like, is the cycles are probably still there, hmm. but they're becoming more extreme. Oh. So it's getting wetter in the wet periods and yeah. drier in the dry periods. So in Australia, given the the extreme dry periods, should we be concerned about our water usage and, and our water availability when it comes to El Nino? Absolutely. I think we've got some real challenges in terms of growing populations mm-hmm. and getting a dependable water supply mm-hmm. for those populations, just for drinking. Yeah. And we've seen... In the 2002 to 2008 drought, which was the last really major long drought, which is called the Millennium Drought. It um, lasted six years. Yeah. Oh, my and, gosh. And, and Sydney was starting to run out of water. Mm-hmm. And so they had to go to another plan, which was actually to build a, um, a, a, a plant that would take seawater and convert it to Freshwater, so we mm. have a salinization, um, a desal plant, mm-hmm. desalinization plant, mm-hmm. um, off uh, near Port Botany there, mm-hmm. and it's very expensive in terms of electricity. Yeah, to create that process. Right. That's one of the things when, when people say, well, why don't we just convert the ocean water to yeah. fresh water? Exactly. It's just very expensive because it's such a it is a very difficult process to get all that salt out of the water. That's correct. Yeah. And, and then the other problem that no one really talks about is that you take the water out there, but you're still left with the salt. Yeah. What do you do with the salt? Yeah. And so, you know, governments generally just dump it out to sea again. Oh, so, oh no, that's increasing the salinity. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so it's sort oh. of out of sight, out of mind type oh, thing. So no. there's, there are consequences to all of these um, major decisions around water. Yeah. And, um, the, the real challenge, I think, is that um, with a country that's got these extremes of droughts and floods mm-hmm. is how do we make sure that we don't keep on saying we need more water? What they call mm. the demand part of the equation. How do you reduce people's demand for water? Oof, uh, that seems... It, um, impossible because water is life, right? We started this podcast. Yes, but that. if you look at how much water we use, oh, I see. Very little of it do we use for our own 
survival. So it's kind of excessive water usage. We There are huge issues around efficiency of, of mm. use. We don't do anything in this big city of Sydney yeah. really to capture runoff. So we have huge storms here and all that water goes out to sea. Mm -hmm. um, there's okay. more rainfall, rainwater tanks have been established mm -hmm. in lots of different places. Mm -hmm. Many people have grown the wrong sort of plants here. So they've gone and got northern hemisphere plants and would have, have to be watered at least once a day during yeah. the summer. Mm -hmm. And that creates problems rather than having some of the wonderful Plants we have in Australia yeah. with great flowers, mm -hmm. but are actually adapted to being able to cope with arid conditions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so going back to <clears throat> the the you know El Nino and and our rivers, did we ever have a river that's fully dried up and has not been able to be a river again? Ah, uh, we haven't ever got that far. Have we come close? We've certainly come close. Oh. So in the millennium drought, um, the Murray-Darling, which is the big food basket and fibre basket of Australia in the southeast of the continent, mm -hmm. uh, about a sixth of the continent, um, flows off that great dividing range to the west. And those rivers eventually go out to sea south of Adelaide. Mm -hmm. And there are some major wetland systems, the Coorong and Lower Lakes down there. Mm -hmm. They actually started to dry up. And what happened then is they started to expose their soils to the air mm -hmm. and they developed acid sulfate soils. So oh. you actually had like battery acid oh my in these wetlands being exposed because they were no longer covered by water and huge impacts on biodiversity, mm -hmm. huge impacts on local farmers and governments to actually deal with that. We're at one stage flying aeroplanes over and dumping out lime to neutralise the oh, acid on yes. in the soils. I recall So, that. you know, there are big consequences. And, and so that essentially brought about what's called the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, mm -hmm. which is a great initiative by governments to restore the rivers of the Murray-Darling, which mm -hmm. meant actually buying back water from irrigators uh -huh. and leaving it in the dam or leaving it in the river so that the rivers could survive. So, you know, we're doing some really good things. They're mm -hmm. very challenging mm -hmm. and there have been quite a few politicians have been really had a hard time because of that decision. Wow. Well, so I guess that kind of so, sort of answers my, my next question of, do we have defenses in line for times of extreme drought? We do, and we're getting better policies and we're getting better water in our rivers mm -hmm. um, during the dry times, but we still haven't got it. Right. So we had a big drought in 2018, 2019. Mm -hmm. And one of the research areas we work on in our centre is on platypus. Mm. And because the rivers had been run too hard, in other words, too much water had been taken from them, yeah. we were getting pools which have never been dry, mm -hmm. were drying up, and platypus were dying in those oh. pools. So, and we should not have ever been there. But yeah. essentially because we were poorly managing our rivers, mm -hmm. that was the spot that we were really in trouble over. Mm -hmm. So... Yes, we're getting better at reducing the impacts, but we're not as good as we should be. Yeah. Oh, that's actually, that's devastating. 
Um, yeah, it is. You know, it was. And, yeah. and kind of we put ourselves first, right? We, we, yeah. we yeah. typically do when it comes to a lot of things because it's kind of like a it was a crisis yeah. and it was a response, right? Yeah. You've got to got to save the humans yeah. you know and and then the consequences show. I wish it was to save the humans it was actually to keep an agricultural oh, irrigation no. industry going oh. because of taking too much water in the previous years yeah. out of the dam and not allowing enough in the river but you know here's an a really good example of mm. research influencing and changing the world mm -hmm. so our research resu has resulted in like tens of millions of dollars with the government building a platypus rescue facility out at Dubbo. Yeah. For the next one that happens, it's it's a bit of a band-aid solution. Yeah. But at least there's an opportunity to mm -hmm. put platypus and they can take up to 60 platypus in there. Wow. So it's not a short um low cost um approach, but yeah. it is thinking about how do we mitigate this so that we don't lose platypus from whole river systems mm -hmm. that we can collect them at that critical point. Mm -hmm. have them there for a, for a, a while and then put them back when the water comes back. Mm -hmm. Now, ultimately, what I'd prefer is that we make sure that... That doesn't happen never, in the first place. Happen, but yeah. we're still a, a way off that. Right. Um, actually, if, if any other students are curious, there's a UNSW TikTok account and there's quite a few videos <laughs> of, you know, students in your lab releasing platypus yeah, yeah, back yeah, yeah. into the river systems. And it is, it's beautiful. And, it you know, it, of course, like the music that they play <laughs> kind of makes you emotional, <laughs> but it is really a, a beautiful thing when you see the platypus being returned yeah. to their water systems. And, and I think that's a really exciting thing about being an environmental scientist there's some great stuff that you can do and yeah. it and it can change bits of the world and that's really invigorating. Exactly. Now, so <clears throat> I wanted to talk a little bit about Australian deserts and what happens out there with water and, and where yeah. do they get water and do and some Australian deserts flood and maybe that's how they get water. Yes, I mean, uh, we are the driest inhabited continent. Mm -hmm. Antarctica is drier. Yeah. So we get not much rainfall. Which I think is ironic because it's all ice. I know, that's And right. it's all water, right? <laughs> know, like, right. it's it's hard for me to understand. It is, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but the middle of our continent is very dry. Yes. It gets in, right in the centre less than 250 millimetres a year. However, it's highly variable. Hmm. So there are rivers in the middle of our deserts. Really? And a lot of those rivers will be dry most of the time, naturally dry. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the plants and the animals, mm -hmm. um, particularly the invertebrates and, and the plants, are adapted to that. They lay seeds down. They're, the invertebrates die, but they leave these huge, massive egg banks mm -hmm. for the next time that river flows. Yeah. And when that river flows, it can do it in those La Nina years. You'll get these massive floods that come down the river. And mm -hmm. you know, one of my favorite rivers is called Cooper Creek, and it get, got its name from um, Charles Sturt, who was a European explorer in the 1800s, was the first European out there. Obviously, Aboriginal people, First Nations people have been on these rivers and understood these ri rivers for millennia. Mm -hmm. But he went out there and he came across this river. He couldn't believe it was a river. So oh. he called it a creek. And yet this Cooper Creek in flood can be 80 kilometres wide. Whoa. So it's a massive floodplain. Yeah. And, and and it also now has two rivers that go into that creek. 
Wow. And eventually Cooper Creek goes out into Lake Eyre, which is in the middle of the continent. So mm-hmm. it doesn't go out to sea. Yeah. So that whole internal system is a desert river mm-hmm. which relies on these cycles of La Nina events and often cyclones. So these big cyclones that come through northern Australia and eastern Australia, some of those go off course and they come down through the continent and dump all their rain into those river systems. And then they will run for up to a year or more. Oh, wow. I just thought you were going to say he was a fan of Alice Cooper and therefore (laughs) (laughs) named the river after his favorite band. I I think Alice Cooper might have been been later. Like a couple of centuries, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, I also wanted to mention that the students go out to Centennial and Randwick Park, right? And there's some wetlands there. Now, just as a person who studies water, do you refer to them as wetlands? Do you refer to them as marshes, as bogs? Yes. Good question. I mean, it depends. Like Like all of these things, they, at a very general sense. Yeah. There are there are land that gets wet. Therefore, oh. there are wetlands. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you think about anything that gets wet, mm-hmm. it could be a wetland. Okay, so that's like a general umbrella. That's a general term. umbrella <clears throat> term. <clears throat> so, then within wetlands, even a river can be a wetland. Mm-hmm. Okay. An estuary is a wetland. I've never heard that word before. What is an estuary? An estuary is essentially where fresh water comes down the system. And meet seawater. That's oh, an estuary. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. So um, a lake is a wetland. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially anything that gets wet. And, and within that, then you'll get organisms, plants, animals, bacteria, fungi that are only adapted to having water or cycles of water. Mm-hmm. So when our students go out to Centennial Park, they'll be looking at what invertebrates are there, what plants are there and what birds are there. And these will be water birds. So these will be ducks and cormorants, maybe the odd pelican. And they depend on water. You can't find them anywhere else except in a wetland. Mm -hmm. Mostly they need fresh water as well. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those species are affected by what we do to river systems and have done to river systems. Right. Um, and so the the wetlands in, in Centennial Park versus uh, Randwick Environmental Park, from just observing it myself and, and having, you know, been a demonstrator for the course, you've typically the one in, there's three in Centennial Park, actually, right? There's the Duck Pond and, oh my gosh, the names are escaping me. Lily Pond. <laughs> Lily Pond, yeah, yes. And, but actually those three that we work on, but they're probably, I think they're about seven or eight. Of them yes, around, yes. Yeah. But we're, yeah, in, yeah. in, in the wetland um, mm. where, where the students are doing their activities, one of them is actually supposed to be, the idea is that it's a constant wetland or lacustrine, yeah. right? Meaning it's everlasting. A yeah. uh, yes, a yeah. lake. Yeah. Versus Randwick Environmental Park, is ephemeral, which yeah. means it's seasonal, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's dry, sometimes it's wet. Yeah. Now, was Randwick Environmental Park always ephemeral or was it actually supposed to be everlasting? Yeah, and and it's a very good question. Um, it's, as I as far as I know, it was always a temporary wetland okay. or ephemeral wetland. Yeah. So it was just dependent on how much rain. Mm, and it's okay. not even seasonal in the sense that you couldn't sort of say in any particular year or any particular month, you'd expect water there. Mm. It's more a case of 
was there a storm and did it dump lots of rain in there in the last month or so? Because it won't keep water for that long Mm -hmm. and particularly through the summer period where it gets hot. I guess the reason why why I asked is because there are so many like trees in there that depend on the water. Yeah. So so a lot of trees in temporary or ephemeral wetlands, Mm -hmm. they'll usually be around the edge and they don't need to get water that often. In fact, if they get watered too much, they'll die. Oh. So even some of the inland floodplain trees, mm-hmm. like Coolabar and Black Box, mm-hmm. they probably only get need to be flooded once every 10 years. Okay. And so when most of the time you see them, yeah. you know they're wetland trees, if you like, mm-hmm. but you don't ever see a wetland there because you don't happen to be there when that one in 10 year flood occurs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but if they don't get that, then, then they'll die. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, see, students, you can uh, use this actually in your report. Absolutely. Um, you know the the differences between Centennial and um, and Randwick Park, and and extra points if you use words like ephemeral um, <laughs> for for your report. Um, to end this, um, Richard, this is something that I will be doing for our future uh, scientists on the podcast since this is your second one. I wanted to know if you have any advice for students who want to go into either ecology or ecology-adjacent work, you know, perhaps uh, environmental engineering or anything like that. What advice do you have for those students and how can they get more involved? Absolutely. I think it's a really important question and a very good one. And I think you have to sort of have a passion to learn. You need to not just understand what we teach you here. Mm -hmm. But think about it in the context of what's needed in the world out there. But if you want to get jobs in this space, you have to put yourself in the right place to meet the right people, network. We always say volunteers are a good option. Um, Not often people have a chance to volunteer because, you know, we're having to have jobs, etc. But even a few hours a week somewhere Mm. in a place where you think is relevant will build up not only your network of the people who might be there, but potentially future employers Mm -hmm. because they say, oh, I remember that that person, they were really cool. You know, they were so enthusiastic and, and, you know, and maybe you turn up at a job interview and they're they're on your panel. Mm -hmm. Or more often that what happens is in fact, they get to know you really well, they'll say, oh, we've got a job in three months' time. Want mm-hmm. to make sure you, you're, you're aware of that yeah. and it's coming up. So network's really important. Make sure you build your knowledge. So don't just sort of think, I will only do a little bit of biology or environment. Do as much as you can of what interests you. Build up your skills because they don't just want to know you're a good person and you're motivated and you care. They also need your skills. And Mm -hmm. so that's really important. I cannot echo that more. Um, I I really do agree. Volunteering and and as students, we have this luxury of being able to try different things. In uni, you can take different courses from across different faculties and, you know, reach out to your academics and and even... uh, like, you know, like you said, writing a reference letter for somebody who's even volunteered for a short amount of time is still so much more. Yeah. And sometimes I get students reaching out to me that have just been in a class and have say, hey, can you write yeah. me a reference letter? 
And I can, but it will be more generic yeah. Yeah. than it would be if you had actually come and chatted and Absolutely. maybe even volunteered. So how can a student, um, you know, get on their volunteer journey, let's say, at UNSW? What's the best way? What's your advice there? Yeah, look, uh, we have volunteer um, opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they come through the Bees website. Yeah. But also talk to your lecturers. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a great opportunity with the people um, who lecture you, but also the people who demonstrate. Yeah. They're all researchers. Yeah. They're all doing really cool projects. Not only that, they know other cool projects. And quite often, researchers are looking for volunteers. Um, make sure you sort of visit the centre website. So you might all be used to use, using UNSW website and the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences. But within there, there are actually research websites of all sorts of cool stuff that people are doing. Mm -hmm. Get to know those. The other really important opportunity is fairly recent. We have at UNSW this work integrated learning. So when you Mm -hmm. get into second and third year, Mm -hmm. look out for it. Because essentially these are where you get six units of credit working in one of the government workplaces or in a non-government organisation, and that's where you'll get not only... You don't have to volunteer, you won't get paid, but you build a network because you'll absolutely be working in potentially your future employer's workplace. Exactly. That's excellent. Well, I hope everybody's enjoyed this podcast. Um, Richard, we'll see you in class. Great. Thanks, Anastasia. (laughs)